The theme for this panel is What is Morality? The Philosophical and Theological Foundations of Moral Debate. Nothing like a little light-hearted, fluffy, elementary-type uh, panel topic to, to get us going. So how often have we heard on the talk shows, on the op-ed pages, in the grocery line, and even in our law schools, this claim, usually stated with bluster and confidence, but you can't legislate morality. But of course you can. We do it all the time. Indeed, we don't do much else. After all, at the end of the day, law is about coordinating our affairs, about protecting what is precious, about facilitating our flourishing, and about achieving ordered liberty. It is, in other words, a thickly and inescapably moral enterprise. So are law and morality distinct? Of course they are. But are they unrelated? Of course not. The right questions to ask, then, are not, are law and morality related, or does law shape and reflect morality, or can we legislate morality? The right questions, instead, are harder. What morality do we want our laws to reflect, affirm, and enforce? To what extent do we want to use law, as opposed to some other social institution, to inculcate and instantiate moral commitments? What do we do about moral disagreement, about dissent, about pluralism and difference? And when do we have reasons, good reasons, moral reasons, not to engage in legal moralism, to refrain from punishing vice or requiring virtue? And of course, how do we justify, how do we morally justify the use of law's coercive force? Well, those are just a few of the questions that I think we'll be talking about, I hope, on this panel over the course of the weekend and over the course of the weekend. And having said all that, I want to introduce our speakers. Uh, first is the invisible uh, Michael Perry, who unfortunately we will have to imagine is here because he was waylaid by, at the last minute by illness. Uh, instead, you're stuck with me, who is less charming but at least taller. Uh, Michael Perry is the Associate Dean for Scholarship and the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Law at Emory. Uh, I am not. Professor Perry is the author of nine books and dozens of articles dealing with church-state questions, constitutional law, judicial review, and human, human rights. I am not. And uh, we should say that Michael Perry enjoys the honor of blogging with me uh, at mirrorofjustice.com. That's mirrorofjustice.com. Uh, so if you want his views, feel free to tune in. Professor Randy Barnett, of course, needs no introduction, particularly to members of the Federal Society. Uh, it's hard to think of anybody, frankly, in the academy who's been as generous with his time and his talent to students and colleagues as he has. Uh, that said, having said he needs no introduction, here's the introduction. Randy Barnett is the uh, Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown, uh, to where he recently moved after years at Boston University. And he, too, is the author of a number of important books, including most recently, Restoring the Lost Constitution. More important, Randy Barnett is something of a blogger himself contributing to the conversation at the Volokh conspiracy. Professor Robert Burns, of course, is homegrown talent. He is professor of law here at Northwestern, where, so far as I can tell, he wins a teaching award every year. He is a distinguished evidence and procedure scholar and the author of dozens of articles on everything from Marcusa and Rawls to the Texas Code of Judicial Conduct. And his most recent book is The Theory of the Trial. And finally, uh, John Baker joins us from Louisiana State University, 
where I assume the austere gloom of Lent is settling over the detritus of Mardi Gras, uh, where he is the Dale E. Bennett Professor of Law and teaches constitutional law, criminal law, and a number of other subjects. He's an expert on the federalization of crime and the author of several books, including The Intelligence Edge. And here I feel very intimidated because he wrote and co-hosted an 18-part television series on law and morality. So the rest of us are just pretenders because this guy's been on television. (laughs) Now, Professor Perry was to be our first speaker, but again, he's not here. Uh, So you're stuck with me. Rest assured again that Professor Perry is, is, is witty. Uh, Now, when he told me he was not going to be able to make it, and those of you who know Professor Perry's political views will will, uh, get the joke here, I threatened to present to you a talk along these lines. Oh, how I love Justice Scalia, a tribute in ten parts by Michael Perry. (laughs) But since that threat didn't work, I have to assume he really is ill. And so I will present and defend as best I can the paper and the arguments that Professor Perry had planned to present, but I will do so from the chair. Okay, so. Now I'm short like Michael Perry. Uh, I don't know know if it looks funny out there, but we feel like we're very, uh, we're sitting at like mini chairs back here. We need telephone books. So first, a few preliminaries. Uh, As we all know, there is not just one morality in the world. There are many. The morality Adolf Hitler espoused is radically different from the morality Mother Teresa espoused. Nonetheless, each is a morality. To say that there are many moralities, however, is to say nothing about whether a particular morality or indeed any morality is true. Of course, just as one can acknowledge that there are many moralities and reject every one of them as false, one can acknowledge that there are many moralities and affirm a particular morality is true. Now, although it is only one morality among many, the morality of human rights has become the dominant morality of our time. Indeed, unlike any morality before it, the morality of human rights has become a truly global morality. Nonetheless, the morality of human rights is not well understood. What does the morality of human rights hold? The International Bill of Rights, as it is informally known, consists of three documents. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And according to this International Bill of Rights, and also according to many uh, constitutions in liberal democracies, the morality of human rights consists of a twofold claim. The first part of the claim is that each and every human being has equal inherent dignity. The second part of the claim is that the inherent dignity of human beings has a normative force for us. In this sense, we should, every one of us, live our lives in accord with the fact that every human being has inherent dignity. That is, we should respect, and we have conclusive reason to respect, the inherent dignity of every human being. There's another way to restate the twofold claim that is the morality of human rights. Every human being has inherent dignity and is inviolable. In the context of the morality of human rights, to say that every human being has inherent dignity and that we should live our lives accordingly is to say that every human being has inherent dignity and is inviolable. Well, if it is true, why is it true that every human being has inherent dignity and is inviolable? That the International Bill of Rights is famously silent on that question is not surprising. 
given the plurality of religious and non-religious views that existed among those who gave us the Universal Declaration. Indeed, the claim that every human being has inherent dignity and is inviolable is deeply problematic for many secular thinkers because the claim is difficult to align with one of their fundamental convictions, what Bernard Williams called Nietzsche's thought, which is, there is not only no God, but no metaphysical order of any kind. Well, let's ask, then, the ground of normativity question about the morality of human rights. Is the morality of human rights true? Do we have reason to live the sort of life the morality of human rights claims that we should live, a life in which we strive never to violate any human being, never to treat any human being as if she lacks inherent dignity, a life in which we strive always to respect the inherent dignity of every human being? I want to elaborate, that is, Professor Perry wants to elaborate, an affirmative religious response, in particular, an overtly Christian response to the question. Of course, one who is not a religious believer, and even many who are religious believers, will not find the response plausible. Nonetheless, the response I want to elaborate is an intelligible, coherent response to this ground of normativity question, a response that many religious believers accept as a good reason, a, con a conclusive reason, to live the sort of life the morality of human rights claims they should live. So imagine a believer named Sarah. Sarah affirms that every human being has inherent dignity and that we should live our lives accordingly. In affirming this, Sarah affirms the morality of human rights. And predictably, predictably, Sarah's affirmation provokes this question. Why does every human being have inherent dignity? Well, Sarah gives a religious explanation. Speaking the words of the first letter of John, Sarah says, God is love. Moreover, God's act of creating and sustaining the universe is an act of love. And we human beings are the beloved children of God and sisters and brothers to one another. Every human being has inherent dignity, says Sarah, in the sense that every human being is a beloved child of God and a sister or brother to every other human being. Sarah's fully aware, of course, that she is speaking analogically, but that's the best anyone can do when you're talking about God. Sarah's explanation provokes yet a further question about the ground of normativity in the claim that we should live our lives in a way that respects the dignity of every human being. I'll assume for the sake of our discussion that every human being has inherent dignity. So what? Why should it matter to me, to the way I live my life, that every human being has dignity, that every human being is a child of God and a sister or brother to me? So what? In responding to this question about the ground of normativity, Sarah, who understands the authority of moral claims to be warranted not by divine dictates, but by their contributions to human flourishing, states her belief that the God who loves us has created us to love one another. And given our created nature, given what we have been created for, the most fitting way of life for us human beings is one in which we embrace the new commandment to love one another just as I have loved you. By becoming persons of a certain sort, Persons who discern one another as bearers of inherent dignity and love one another as such, we thereby fulfill our created nature. Now, it bears emphasis that Sarah does not believe that she should be the sort of person she is because God has issued a command to her to be that sort of person. A command that because God is entitled to rule, she is obligated to obey. A theistic vision does not necessarily include a conception of God as supreme legislator. For Sarah, for whom God is love, not supreme legislator, some choices are good for us to make because God is who God is, because the universe is what it is, and because we human beings are who we are. 
Now, Sarah is skeptical that any secular ground can bear the weight of the twofold claim that every human being has inherent dignity and is inviolable. Sarah wonders whether there is anything that one who is not a religious believer can say that is functionally equivalent to the unashamedly, unashamedly anthropomorphic claim that we are sacred because God loves us. Sarah's religious response to the ground of normativity question reminds us that in the real world, fundamental moral questions are intimately related to religious questions or metaphysical questions. There is no way to address fundamental moral questions without also addressing, if only implicitly, religious questions. In the real world, one's response to fundamental moral questions has long been intimately bound up with one's response to certain other fundamental questions. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is our origin? Where are we going? What is our destiny, our end? What is the meaning of suffering, of evil, and death? And there is the cardinal question, the question that comprises many of the others. Is human life ultimately meaningful or instead ultimately bereft of meaning, meaningless, absurd? If any questions are fundamental, these questions are fundamental. These are the most serious and difficult that any human being or society must face. Well, again, so what if there is no plausible secular response to the ground of normativity question? What difference does it make? The philosopher Richard Rorty counsels that we should abandon human rights foundationalism, which in his estimation has proven futile. Worse, it's proven outmoded. There is Rorty suggests a better project for those of us who embrace the cause of human rights. We see our task as a matter of making our own culture, human rights culture, more self-conscious and powerful, rather than demonstrating its superiority to other cultures by an appeal to something transcendental like human nature. We should try to convert others to our human rights culture, to our local we, to our Eurocentric sentiments and preferences partly through a process of manipulating sentiments, of sentimental education, of telling sad and sentimental stories. But for many of us who embrace the cause of human rights, the fundamental wrong done when the inherent dignity of a human being is not respected is not that our local Eurocentric sentiments are offended. The fundamental wrong done is that the very order of the world, the normative order of the world, is transgressed. Now, we might be wrong to believe that the world has a normative order, one, uh, one, that one transgresses whenever one violates a human being. But if we are wrong, if this belief is false, and if we nonetheless coerce others in the name of protecting the dignity of human beings, then aren't we coercing and even killing in the name of nothing other than our local sentiments and preferences, our Eurocentric human rights culture? So against the background of Rorty's comments, let's ask, should we who embrace the cause of human rights abandon human rights foundationalism should we abandon the project of trying to ground the claim that every human being has inherent dignity? If we were to abandon the project of trying to ground that claim, what would we be left with? Eurocentric sentiments and preferences? How much weight these sentiments and preferences would be able to bear is an open question. Now, perhaps some who have no ground are more confident about their conviction that every human being has dignity and is inviolable than they would be about any possible ground for their conviction. Perhaps some will say that they have no time to obsess about possible grounds for their conviction because they are too busy changing the world. Still, this question intrudes. If, as their conviction holds, the other truly does have inherent dignity and truly is inviolable, what else has to be true about the universe? What else must be true for it to be true that the other has dignity? And that question brings us back to something I said earlier. The morality of human rights is deeply problematic for many, 
because their morality is diff- because that morality is difficult to align with one of their fundamental convictions what Bernard Williams called Nietzsche's thought. There is not only no God, but no metaphysical order of any kind. Now again, the point is not that morality cannot survive the death of God. There is not just one morality, there are many. The serious question, though, is whether a particular morality, our morality, the morality of human rights, can survive the deconstruction of God. Nietzsche's thought and the morality of human rights are deeply antithetical to one another, which will prevail. And with that, Randy Barnett. Michael, you're a tough act to follow. That's all I can say. Um, Well, when I was invited to speak here tonight, and I was very pleased to do so because actually I owe a great debt to the the student uh, symposium of the Federal Society, the National Student Symposium, because it was my invitation to the fifth such symposium at Stanford Law School. Uh, that was my first effort to write something uh, over my objection, actually, on the Constitution. At, at that point, I was just a contracts professor. So it was the burden of, uh, for the attra- it was like an attractive nuisance. It was the attraction of wanting to speak at the uh, symposium that caused me to accept, and then I had the burden of actually saying something on the First Amendment, which is what the symposium was about. And that was the beginning of this process of my uh, transitioning uh, into constitutional law, since the punchline of my talk then was the Ninth Amendment, and then I thought, well, maybe I should learn something about what that really means. So I'm very pleased to be here. I was pleased to accept. But when I was invited to speak, I was basically just told the title of the conference, which is Law and Morality. And as somebody who's written about that, uh, has thought about that as a law professor, I, I feel I know something about that. And then a few days ago, when I was getting ready to decide exactly what I was going to say, I looked at the title of this panel which isn't exactly about that. It says, what is morality? The philosophical and theological foundations of moral debate. Uh, now, I'm reminded at this point of a, of a line, uh, one of my favorite lines from Clint Eastwood uh, from the movie Magnum Force, in which he says, a, ma- a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I don't even play one on TV. And, and I am a law professor, and even though I write about rights, uh, uh, other than legal rights, I write about natural rights, I don't do the kind, I don't really write or think uh, that hard about the topic of this panel. So I was trying to decide what could I accomplish, especially in 10 minutes, if hopefully I've used up two. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, geez, I can't wait to hear, hear what I have to say next. Um, no, so, so, um, what could I accomplish in eight minutes? And, and it's, it's, it seemed to me that the, the number one thing that this entire conference might benefit from is keeping in mind an important distinction. And that is distinction between private morality and public morality. Uh, now, we heard Rick's introductory comments, and it didn't make that distinction. It, it talked about morality generally and how much do we want to have and how much do we not want to have and how far do we want to take it and, 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 and the like. But I do think it's useful in discussing morality to keep these two ideas in separate. And so basically all I want to do is explain what I think one private morality is and what I think public morality is and then say a little of what the relationship is between these two, because I do think they're related. Um, and by the way, there's nothing magical about these terms. You might find other terms you like better. These are just the most convenient terms I could come up with. And I also think these terms tend to 
occur in, uh, in the historical materials that we tend to study when we're thinking about the Constitution. So what I mean by private morality is the morality of human conduct. It is basically the, it is how we ought to live. What should we do with our lives? You, I would also, another word I would use for this would be ethics. Um, it, is, it is private morality. It is how we ought to live our lives. When we get up in the morning, what should we do with ourselves? And, and are there any answers to that question? And now when I use the word private morality, some of you may be thinking um, that I'm thinking of something highly subjective and highly personal and just a matter of opinion and not something objective. And that's not at all the case. Um, I received the philosophical instruction that I did at Northwestern as an undergraduate from uh, the very uh, renowned Aristotelian Thomist philosopher Henry Veach. Um, I have to say that uh, I was very persuaded uh, by the approach that he articulated when I was a student, and I still am persuaded by that approach, even though I don't write about it and I don't publish about it. Um, and if you take the Aristotelian Thomist approach as I understand it, and I'm basically just going to give you my own understanding of it seriously, uh, the idea of good and bad, the idea of good conduct and bad conduct is an objective thing. It is not wholly subjective, meaning that it's something true about the world that describes whether we're acting well or we're acting poorly. And the word that Aristotelian Thomas used in, in capturing this idea is, is, is vice and virtue. Uh, vices are the things that are to be avoided in your, your personal behavior, and virtue is the way one is supposed to behave. In fact, it's an internal uh, state that one is supposed to achieve. Um, I do think these things are objective, and the way they're objective uh, in this school of thought is to say that human beings have a nature, that we are the kind of creatures that we are, and there are things that are good for us just as there are things that are good for other uh, organisms. There's things that are good for oak trees, and a favorite Aristotelian example. There's things that are good for other animals. There's things that, good, that are peculiarly good for us. Um, and these are not just a matter of what we want to be good for us. These are things that are good for us. And in that sense, there's an objective uh, truth about uh, our telos or natural end. Now, having said that, having insisted, because I think I don't want to be misunderstood in thinking this is all subjective, having said this, I want to emphasize two other things that Henry Beach taught me about the objective good for human beings. One is that, that living the good life, which is what we're talking about, is a do-it-yourself affair. That's his words. I'll never forget them. It's something that only you can do. It's not something anybody can do for you. You could actually just live and behave properly your whole life and still not live a good life because you're just doing what people told you to do. You sort of have to internalize the virtues. Virtue isn't internalized. It's a habituated state in which you just do things because that's the right thing to do. You don't even think about it. You go into a store and you don't fail to shoplift because you're calculating your chances of getting caught. Now, some of you in this room probably do um, do that. <laughs> Because in any group of large people, there are people who are not virtuous and who actually, through a great deal of effort and will, maintain themselves on the positive side of the line just by doing their calculations right. But a virtuous person doesn't do that. A virtuous person uh, does what they do. Uh, I've got two minutes left. No. Okay. Um, so a, a virtuous person does what a virtuous person does what they do because they've internalized, they've habituated this idea of of, the, of what's right. Um, and so, so, but it's a do-it-yourself affair. Nobody can do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. And the second thing is, is that the virtues, to the extent we can study them and know them, are very abstract. 
and don't really provide specific guidance. They're not, there's no rule book of ethics that you could just sit down and memorize and study and then figure out what you, how you ought to behave. There are some general principles, there are some general approaches that you should put into effect, but it's always going to be a very highly personal, highly contextual decision. The example that Henry always used to use was that of a fisherman. Uh, fishermen, you can tell the difference between a good fisherman and a bad fisherman, but there's no way that a good fisherman can take you aside and just explain to you, okay, this is exactly how you fish, and then you just follow those rules and you become a good fisherman. No, it takes a lifetime of work at it to be able to do that. And living, why should living life well be any easier than learning how to do something like fishing? or any other thing that you spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to do. So this is what I mean when I say private morality. It is, it is highly significant. It's not insignificant. Uh, what is public morality, then? Public morality is, um, is, is the subject of public morality is not how we should live our lives. The subject of public morality is how should society be structured so as to allow people to live their lives well, to pursue the good life while living in society with others. And the problem that needs to be solved is that we live in close proximity to each other so that our actions have effects on others. So we need a common groundwork or a basic structure or preconditions that will allow individuals to the degree possible, given the nature of society, to live our lives in, side by side and pursue happiness, which is this do-it-yourself affair that requires knowledge of time, place, and circumstances. And so what's the subject of public morality is really something basic. It's morality, but it's not the whole gamut of private morality. It's simply what are the preconditions that allow private morality to operate. Now, I want to just close um, in, in for now, and I assume in the course of discussion we'll get back to this. I want to close with two quotations to illustrate what I'm talking about, the difference between private and public morality. The first is from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, who is no, uh, you know, raving libertarian. Um, and so it's not like I'm, I'm citing Robert Nozick here. And, and here's, when, here's how Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica answered the question whether it pertains to human laws to repress all vices. And here is the answer he gave. Now, human law is framed for a number of human beings, the majority of whom are not perfect in virtue. Therefore, human laws do not forbid all vices from which the virtuous abstain but only the more grievous vices from which it is possible for the majority to abstain, and chiefly those that are to the hurt of others, without the prohibition of which human society could not be maintained. Thus, human law prohibits murder, theft, and the like. Now, that's a moral claim, but it's not a moral claim that all virtues and all vices have to be either prescribed or, or, um, or, or prohibited. And the next quote I want to leave you with uh, to frame the next discussion is a quote from John Locke when he describes the state of nature and what happens in the state of nature prior to government. He says, the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. What Aquinas is describing is sort of a precursor of what the natural rights people more dealt with more formally. And that is there's a difference between virtue and how we ought to behave and the public morality that we create a, a, a civil society and ultimately a government to preserve and protect. And that is to preserve and protect life, health, liberty and possessions. I could say a lot more about that part because that's what I know more about. But fortunately, my time is up. Thanks. Now, uh, 
Robert Burns is next, but actually, just so there's no misunderstanding, I, I, don't, I don't take my introductory remarks to be uh, in conflict with anything that Randy just said. That is, my introductory claim was that making law, doing law, the enterprise of law is a moral enterprise, but I'm, I agree entirely with you and with, you know, uh, Tommy Aquinas, that one, one need not criminalize every vice or require every virtue, certainly. So with that, Robert Burns. Um, I spent the uh, flower of my youth studying the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and, and uh, as is well known, uh, Kant is a, uh, uh, this is over, overblown, but uh, much of his philosophy has to do with imperatives. Um, and so when I saw the title of this uh, uh, program, I took it as an imperative that I actually address uh, the philosophical and, found, uh, philosophical and theological foundations of, uh, of morality and the nature of morality. And so in 10 minutes, I thought I would try to do uh, three things in each of those categories, say three things about the foundations of morality and say uh, three things about the nature of morality. And again, this is sort of deep background to the considerations that you'll be uh, dealing with throughout the seminar. Uh, first, uh, with regard to foundations, these discussions occur against the background of uh, philosophical debate that stretches well beyond moral philosophy. Uh, what it is that philosophy, that philosophers um, may know and what it is fruitful for them to attempt to know. Uh, many philosophers up until uh, Kant uh, addressed ontological or metaphysical uh, issues. What are the nature of things? Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, Aquinas, certainly the modern rationalists up till Kant. From Kant on, uh, at least through the neo-Kantians in the early part of the 20th century, perhaps the dominant selection of terms, and there's a question about whether these are merely fads or whether there's a deep developmental uh, aspect to these changes, had to do with the nature of human reason. So the source of foundations for morality as for everything else was not in the nature of things but in the nature of human reason. In the 20th century, the, the preferred selection of philosophical uh, 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 terms changed again to human language or human actions. You had linguistic analysis, uh, discussion of language regions that uh, line up with these different various uh, spheres of human activity, uh, interest higher level of interest in rhetoric, uh, American pragmatism focused on the actual pragmatic consequences of human action. Uh, Wittgenstein argued that the, what's ultimate are human practices. We can't really go beyond that. Um, now, these, uh, although you can lay these, these developments or selections out historically, there's no absolutes about this. There are 20th century thinkers who think uh, whose, whose selection of terms is the nature of things. But it does, uh, th there is certainly a dominant, a change in the dominant idiom from, from age to age. That yields a second question. Do philosophical approaches to the foundations of morals become, if you want, unavailable because of intellectual or cultural development? Um, and uh, a great 20th century political philosopher, Hannah Arendt, for example, concluded the answer was yes with regard to the natural law tradition. And I'll, I'll read something that she said, very poignant thing she said in a discussion with another uh, emigre from, uh, from uh, Hitler's Germany. Uh, Hans Jonas in 1972. If our future should depend on whether we will get an ultimate from above to decide for us, I would be utterly pessimistic. If this is the case, then we are lost, because this actually demands that a new God will appear. Because this God had disappeared after the Middle Ages, Western humanity was back in the situation it had been before it was saved by the good news. They didn't believe it anymore. That was the, that was the, the actual situation. 
I am perfectly sure that this whole totalitarian catastrophe would never have happened if people still had their belief in God, or, or in hell, rather. That is, if there still were ultimates. There were no ultimates. And you know as well as I do, there were no ultimates that anyone could, with validity, appeal to. One couldn't appeal to anybody. Uh, and her argument was, uh, and she went on to argue, that that was true philosophically, that cultural development uh, was, in a sense, well-grounded in the development of, of uh, Western, uh, Western thought. So her attempt was to attempt to ground political and, and legal rights in uh, things that we do and say, uh, rather than in the nature, uh, in the nature of uh, things. Um, some philosophers have argued that uh, certain approaches to the foundations of, of morality can become unavailable by virtue of intellectual developments. Kant's deconstruct, uh, destruction of the intellectual intuition of self-evident moral truths that had been uh, invoked by the rationalist tradition up to then. Uh, or more broadly, by a greater historical sensitivity to the change in, in, in cultures. Or with a scientific understanding of cosmology or biology uh, that might undermine Aristotle's, Aristotle's metaphysical uh, biology. So it can be in, in, become inconsistent, so the argument goes, with certain um, intellectual developments. There is also an argument that certain approaches to the foundations of morals can become inconsistent with the deep structure of social organization. And you probably know the argument that a society whose uh, dominant institutions are based on scientific, technical, and so instrumental modes of thought will drive out truly moral practices, an argument Alistair McIntyre has made uh, recently. And insofar as great philosophers or philosophies are tightly intertwined with their cultural practices, those philosophies will become less, less able to account for traditional moral uh, uh, practices. Um, uh, finally, final uh, a point with regard to foundations. In the West, certainly until recently, most commitments to, to morality have come out of a religious context. So a larger context of discussion of this question of foundations has to do between, with the relationship between reason and revelation. And this is an enormously complicated uh, his, uh, issue uh, historically. Uh, the large divide between what you might call the voluntarists and the intellectualists, uh, voluntarists claiming that one's obliged to obligations to, um, to the, the foundations of moral uh, obligation comes from the obedience to the norms, the rules that God has chosen to lay down, still has many uh, uh, proponents. Uh, and it gets tied up in developments or debates about divine omnipotence and the, and the, the offensiveness of the, of the thought that God is limited in some way by reason or reasonable uh, norms. And there's a range of views on that, uh, which I don't have time to even touch on. Uh, three points then on the nature of morality. Um, one major question uh, that structures this debate is um, the relationship between the actual approved practices of society, the nomoi, the norms of society, what, what Hegel, uh, uh, rationalizing Burke, if you want, uh, called the sichlichkeit, the embedded moral norms that are embedded in practices that have borne the burden of actual uh, experience uh, in society, uh, and the more abstract principles uh, by which those kinds of practices might possibly be evaluated, what the relationship is between what we actually do and certain abstract, more abstract norms um, that we may use to, uh, to, to, uh, to evaluate those uh, uh, norms. 
one, one side of that debate tends to, the Burkean side, if you want, tends to stress uh, the validity of the uh, embedded norms in, in our practices, uh, relies on the wisdom of experience, the identity of the folks who, who participate in those societies, legitimate expectations that they create, um, and, and more recently, evolutionary uh, norms. Not immune to criticism, but the criticism tends to be more rhetorical and from within the, in the, uh, the, uh, the society. The second, um, the second question with regard to the nature of morality, uh, is, especially if morality is to be critical, is what is the source and form of those norms? Are they principles with Aquinas and Kant? They were principles or, or rules. And with some other thinkers, they tend to be more recently, especially narratives, stories of the exodus of the gospel of the American foundations, that narratives could create norms. Finally, uh, something more uh, pertinent to what you're going to be uh, dealing with tomorrow um, the nature of morality, thirdly, is also determined by the appropriate range of applicability of, of moral norms. Uh, there are any, any decent thinker, any, I think, deep thinker would, would agree that there are spheres of human activity, family, friends, local community, profession, church, economy, politics, the legal world, uh, politics. How broadly does the notion of morality uh, function? There are notions that would limit it to uh, private uh, interaction, face-to-face -face interaction, the interaction of, of ordinary individual uh, um, uh, morality. No direct applicability to those other uh, spheres, and there are different, uh, different explanations of that. Um, that there are natural spheres. A great uh, uh, 20th century Catholic thinker, John Courtney Murray, said those spheres are natural. The Beatitudes have nothing to do with international relationships or the, or the economy. Others, uh, Augustinian thinkers, point to the sinfulness of man, two, two loves made two cities, uh, and uh, Niebuhr's notion of the distinction between moral man and immoral uh, society. So uh, the nature of society is such that moral norms that apply to the personal dimension simply can't find their way into that uh, broad area. The, the big question is how deep is the divide among those spheres and how fixed over generations and over, and over history. Uh, most of, much of uh, English liberalism opposed the notion of the state as a family with the king as, uh, the, king as uh, the father. To what extent do, those, uh, the, do moral norms that prevail in one sphere have some analogous application to another? And is that a historical uh, a question? What's the place of fraternity in politics, of politics in law, of politics, say, democracy in the, uh, in the economy, and to reach the topic that you'll be dealing with uh, tomorrow? What's the reach of the issue of morality in, in, in law? Thank you. Professor Baker is trying to escape the reach of my notes. When uh, Rick introduced me, he mentioned the austere and pious gloom of Lent, having settled over New Orleans after Mardi Gras. What he should have mentioned was the austere and pious gloom that settled over Notre Dame after its trip to the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. <laughs> You know, good lawyers know that how you frame the question really determines the outcome of the discussion. And so the first thing I want to do is disagree with the framing of the question for this whole panel. 
the, the question is, what is morality? And I agree with the philosopher Alastair McIntyre of Notre Dame, uh, who said, who's written that morality, which is no particular society's morality, is to be found nowhere. There have been numerous moralities, but wherever was or is morality as such. So how would I reframe the question? Well, I'll put it this way. Is there a morality of the United States? I would say yes, and I would put it this way. It is the American version of the rule of law. Now, in putting forth this proposition, I'm not denying that there are other moralities within this large country. And in talking about the rule of law, I'm certainly not following the ABA's view that the rule of law is summed up in the rule of judges. Nor am I following necessarily the general Federalist Society view to simply look to the text of the Constitution. Because you have to understand what our Constitution really is. And when you do, you will have greater respect and indeed a passion, as I do, have for separation of powers and federalism. Why? Because while the founders were not philosophers, they were certainly philosophic men. And they understood there were two fundamental moral problems that they had to deal with, although they were not going to answer them. And the first was that which plagued all modern political philosophers. How do you deal with the problem of religious wars in Europe? That is a major concern of theirs. The second is the moral philosophical disagreements over such fundamental questions as the nature of man and how does he reason. This was in transition in the 18th century. There were elements of the classical view, there were elements of the Enlightenment, and there were all kinds of elements. So, in 10 minutes, I'm going to summarize my 18-part television series. <laughs> and in that 10 minutes, I want to hit briefly, and therefore very inadequately, three points. All moralities, though they come out of particular societies, involve universal elements. Two, the particular morality of the United States, which I've labeled the rule of law, has universal elements that are drawn both from secular and religious sources. And three, I'm asking a question. Can the morality of the U.S., this rule of law morality, can it continue to hold in the face of our culture wars? While morality must, first point, while morality must be that of a particular society, for it to really be morality, it has to have a universal element. Now, this is probably the most difficult thing for Americans to accept. And so, at this point, you know, I'll lose most of you in the audience. I understand that. I'll keep going anyway. But when Professor Perry opened and closed his paper, he says that there, are not, there is not just one morality in the world. There are many. Now, he didn't mean this, but that statement could have been taken to mean, well, all moralities are equal, and there are many moralities, and you choose your morality the way you choose a set of clothing. It's particular to you. It's my morality. Well, it may be your view, 
But that's not a morality in terms of what morality means. Morality is more than an army of one. It has to involve something beyond self. And that is difficult for Americans to accept. I understand. Let me give you an example that my fellow prosecutor will appreciate, drawn from the jury system. Contrary to what common law lawyers believe, the jury system is a response to Aristotelian philosophy on prudential reasoning. And it rests on the assumption that human beings have a nature that they can freely choose and that they can know and make judgments about the actions of others. Think about it. Take a murder case in which there's no factual dispute. There is only the question of intent of the defendant when he or she pulled the trigger on the gun that fired the bullet straight into the head of the victim. How can we judge? How can we infer from facts that based on what we know from our experience, that a reasonable person under the circumstance, unless acting in self-defense, ignorance, or out of insanity, must have intended to kill that person. It rests on the assumption that we have a common nature, a common reasoning process, and we can make judgments about that. Judgments are part of moral reasoning. In the jury system, and the example of murder, we have both the particular and the universal. The particular is the jury system. Why? It's peculiar to the Anglo-American system. The rest of the world does not have jury systems the way we do. And yet it is our way of carrying out the notion of due process or fair trial. Murder is wrong. It's universally wrong, not simply because there has been a statute that says murder is wrong. Indeed, that is the basis on which we talk about human rights morality, because we say there are certain things that are so fundamental that they violate human rights when people take the lives of other innocent people without doing so out of self-defense or through due process of law. Professor Perry discusses the possibility, the attempt to find a universal basis for human rights morality. And here, it was not fully clear even in his paper, but I want to focus on something that I think is really critical. He referred to a basis that is not theological, although he gave an example of a theological basis. But in his paper, he conflated religion and metaphysics. They are distinct, even though thinkers of the Enlightenment want to conflate them. And this is absolutely critical. We have to distinguish the difference between religion and metaphysics, even though at times historically they have been joined in the same persons or philosophers. Religion is, after all, a belief in a higher power. It is based on faith. It is not based on reason, which is not to say that it is unreasonable. It can be perfectly reasonable to have a faith, but the reason that you have a faith is not because of reason. When people die for a faith, it's not because they reason to that point. Metaphysics, on the other hand, is a conclusion, an inference based on reason that there is something more to the human person and reason than simply matter. In his uh, quick survey, Professor Burns talked about some of this and what metaphysics dealt with. 
Metaphysics is simply a statement that there is something more than the physical, beyond the physical, and that human reason can infer things about that. That metaphysical position has been attacked by the Enlightenment completely and puts religion and metaphysics in the same box. Interestingly, however, if you follow it all, some of the things coming out in the field of neuroscience, it may be that science is rediscovering that we are not, after all, simply material. The real issue is one of materialism. Can we reason? Do we have a basis for knowing that human persons are not purely material? My second point, few in this audience are going to go on to be moral philosophers, thank goodness. <laughs> but all of you as lawyers will be constantly concerned with applied morality, that is, ethics. After all, you will be called upon, and indeed the older you get, it's the only thing they want you for, is your prudential judgment, your wise counsel. That, after all, is the basis of the word jurisprudence, prudential prudence, the virtue of prudence, which is practical reasoning. It is taking principles and applying them to practical problems. But you can't possibly do that unless you know something of the moral history and foundation which underlies the American legal system. And this legal system, as I said, has, has universal elements that are both religious and secular. I would begin by saying on this point that the morality of U.S. law, <laughs> I've got at least much more. The morality of U.S. law is peculiarly, and this will upset a lot of people, Western. It's not Chinese, it's not Asian which is not to say anything derogatory. In fact, there is much to be learned from China and Asia on putting the mind and the spirit back together. But the reality is that it is the two great religions, Judaism and Christianity, that come forward with the notion that there is God's law, a higher law, an obligation beyond self. But it is also, secondly, and very importantly, pagan philosophy, already mentioned, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, who not only the Greeks discovered philosophy and natural reason, but put forward the notion that there was a nature of the human person, that there is an excellence, and you can talk about goodness and badness. You can talk about good conduct and bad conduct. In, indeed, morality is about choosing good and choosing evil. It is a choice. It is an action. And human beings are, if nothing else, actors. That is, we act. Everything we do is a matter of choice. There have been attempts to spread the Western universal elements, both through religious efforts in, in other parts of the world, but also there is a universal element in our attempts to spread commerce around the world. There is an, an aspect of trying to find a universal basis and we call it the rule of law. But the problem for all of this is that the rule of law means adhering to the law voluntarily rather than simply through force. And yet, if you can't find a universal reason beyond simply increased profits, it doesn't sell or persuade very well. 
in the one or so minutes that I have, I think it is important for us to realize that at the founding, law was still understood as, quote, a moral science. The particular that the founders were concerned about was English law. It was not abstract. They were looking at the rights of Englishmen. And at the founding, as I said, you had all of these conflicting universal elements. In the 19th century, however, under the influence of European ideologies, there was an attack largely led by Justice then Professor Oliver Wendell Holmes. He had a new faith in social Darwinism. And when you read his path of the law, you'll realize that his faith was as unreasonable as any there ever has been in terms of process in the future. But he attacked in this universal notion. He didn't put forward a new natural law. He put forward instead an attack on metaphysical law. I bring you now to the third point, and that is the culture wars. I suggest to you that both sides of the culture wars have neglected reason. On the cultural left, it is painted as a fight between individual rights and religion. On the cultural right, it is painted as a fight between traditionalists and the secular left, as Bill O'Reilly likes to call it. Both try to get the middle ground. The problem for both of them is that they have broken down the civic discussion that the founders expected in a republic. There has to be a common ground. And this week in which we celebrated George, uh, President's Day, it is well to remember what Washington said in his farewell address, that it was possible to have morality without religion, but he cautioned against the notion that in practice you could maintain it. When the founders acted in, as they did to create the Constitution, they created, in the Federalist Papers in particular, an explanation of probably the most brilliant government that affected what the great philosophers had attempted to talk about. But they avoided some of the tough questions. And their solution to the tough questions of morality really were settled in federalism. All the questions that today characterize the culture wars, abortion, parent schools, homosexual rights, etc., these were those moral questions that were to be left at the state level. When people say that prohibition established that you can't legislate morality, that's nonsense. Prohibition established that it is contrary to American morality to have the federal government establish the grounds of morality on many issues over which people disagree. Thank you very much. All right, so we're going to have questions. Uh, you guys know how the drill works. I'm going to exercise uh, the moderator's privilege and ask the first one. Uh, and this is for Professor Barnett. Uh, Randy, you invoked virtue several times in your remarks, which is, as you say, the, the result of habituation. And so just a few thoughts from you on what the role of law is, what the role of public morality is in not requiring but facilitating the habituation of virtue. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a welcome question. It's pro it goes to the stuff that I would have said if I had gone over my time like John did. Um, <laughs> I, I could listen to John for hours, though, so it's okay. Uh, and, and it has to do with the relationship of the uh, public morality and the private morality, which is what I was trying to draw. And the public morality is to establish the preconditions that are necessary um, for people to live their lives and pursue the good life. And what those preconditions are requires argument and analysis. And that really was the subject of my first book, The Structure of Liberty, where I try to lay out what I think is the argument for uh, the types of uh, boundaries or space within which people may choose. So I think the, the, the point of public morality is to create a boundary or space or liberty within which people may choose. And uh, these are and, and the way we define that conceptually or we put it into words is we describe this as rights. We describe these as liberty rights or we describe these as the founders did as natural rights. Natural rights describe the boundary or just within we can choose to pursue the good life. Um, so I don't think that law has a direct role to play um, other than to make sure and protect people in making the choices that they have to make in order to pursue the good life. I don't think that law can tell you what kind of life to live, although I do think that if they just if the law does teach us uh, to respect the rights of others, that that is a good start on, on acting virtuously. There's one other thing I want to say that always comes up in these discussions. and If I don't see it now, I probably kick myself. And that is that it's always said at some point uh, in, in conferences like this. Well, what gives lawyers or judges what qualifies lawyers or judges? to opine on matters of morality that philosophers like Michael Perry um, and Bob Burns can't necessarily agree about. Um, where do you get your qualifications uh, to do that? Well, I think if you confine yourself to the realm of public morality and you don't enter into the realm of private morality, um, I, think you're high, I think one is trained in law school to deal with the issue of private morality, particularly in the first year of law school. The subjects of contracts, torts, and property, and to a lesser extent, agency and other of the, what we would think of as the private law subjects, are subjects in which we learn what the pretty specific and rules and general principles are uh, that, provide, that define the boundary or space, space within which uh, we are to free to choose. Um, and so you all are, after your first year of law school, uh, relatively expert as compared to the general population and as compared to many philosophers who haven't gone through the first year of law school. You're relatively expert um, on what is the public morality that has been generated by the common law largely, but also by occasional intervention by statutes, but what has been generated over centuries by the common law, case by case, uh, uh, building up that information. Uh, so I would say that would be, uh, uh, that's probably not what you were asking me, but uh, it's what I wanted to say. Okay, so we're going to try to have maximum uh, question input and relatively minimal panelist output. So uh, keep them pithy and uh, keep them questions rather than the talk you would have given had you been invited to be up here. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. I'll try to be short. Evan Barham from Yale. My question is, how do we manage competing and possibly mutually exclusive theological and philosophical foundations for morality, rights, or law? Through the case study of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Jacques Maritain brokered this wildly diverse uh, series of debates, some of which were theological justifications for rights. In the end, he said, 
all we can agree on is this list of rights as long as we don't agree on or even recognize any foundation for this. So if we, so do we side with just rendering it that we have to be neutral and not accept any of them? And if we don't do that, how do we broker competing theological or philosophical foundations? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, 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 I'm not exact, I'm not 100% sure on what, what you're asking there, but what it suggests to me is that at that level, um, the resolution of those questions are going to be rhetorical. They're not going to be based on first principles that are universally accepted. They're going to be on some kind of negotiated uh, resolutions among the nations that participate in, in those kinds of dialogues. And um, th you're, you're not going to be able to derive resolutions that are respect what one philosopher called canons of peace. Uh, there will be more canons of peace than ultimate issues of, of grounded morality in any kind of external, external source that are universally accepted. So there will be negotiated solutions in the, in the range of cases. Now, there are always hard cases, of course, uh, where you do seem to head up towards, uh, towards principles that would appear to be to get, gain the uh, adherence of large numbers of, but that's all you can say, large numbers of nations. So um, th I think there is no universal morality on any issue that, that counts, that, that is likely to be of argument among the, the nations. You can, you can state the abstract principle when it, it's, its application is going to be highly contextual. I think. The problem with the, the human rights uh, dialogue that Perry and others represent is that it takes a sovereign state to protect and enforce rights. And it's great to have this worldwide buzz about human rights, but who, in fact, is out there protecting them? That, that was Arendt's point, actually, in another part of that argument. She said, in the when we were going from country to country in Europe, there were a few uh, idealists who adhered to universal statements of human rights. Uh, but they were utterly without effect because we had lost the ability, we had lost the right to have rights, and that is basically the membership in a, in a, um, in a national community. Thanks. Yes, sir. Hi, David Shimataro, Ave Maria School of Law. And my question is for Professors uh, Baker and Burns uh, about the relationship between morality and philology. Um, and philology? That, philology, the nature of words. Yeah. Um, and that is that it seems like a big um, debate between, particularly between uh, originalists and textualists when you're talking about the Constitution in particular um, has to do with how we interpret certain words. And uh, in our day and age, um, unlike when, uh, during the time of the founders, uh, we have incredibly powerful um, media influence out there. And it seems like uh, mores and different meanings um, change so rapidly over time. And particularly in a constitutional context, the words um, uh, uh, equal, as we just saw a few, a few moments ago, and uh, liberty are particularly contentious as to what those words mean. Um, and, and my question is, um, given you know, our current um, state of the world, um, is it at all reasonable to think that we can put um, absolute sort of um, uh, objection of objection, um, objective uh, meaning to words that can last over time, even in the midst of this sort of hurricane of culture and uh, uh, driven by this uh, media that we have? Well, you've you got a few things going there. Um, the, one, one of them is the, is the relationship of, of those words to 
uh, authoritative norms and where those norms come from. Um, uh, it's, it's one thing if those norms are the intentions or meanings of the, the folks who spoke the words originally, and, and that becomes a, philological, becomes a philological question. How can we gain access to either the intent of the speaker or how those words would have been received by the audience that they, that they spoke to? Uh, if, the, if the question is, and I think you're implying it as well, that we're also asking about the transtextual norms that those words would, re would relate to, uh, that's another set of questions. And it's a question about whether or not the text, the text of the Constitution should be interpreted in light of norms that are um, either transhistorical or, his or historical. And you know, that's, another whole, that's another whole issue, I think. Uh, the draftsman of the Constitution made a very prudential judgment in leaving out a Bill of Rights. And they did so, as explained in Federalist 84, because the Bill of Rights, as said, belongs in a uh, statement on philosophy. It doesn't belong in a governing law. And if what you look at in your textual problems, 99% of them occur in the Bill of Rights. There aren't nearly that many textual problems in the original draft Constitution. It is written for everyone in the country, not just lawyers. We know the age the person has to be to run for the Senate. We know the age the person has to be to run for the presidency. There are very few lawyer-like words in the text of the Constitution. The reason why lawyers love the Bill of Rights is because it gives them a big playing field to carry on with the common law development of law. You can't do that with the structure of the Constitution. And that is what they wanted, a structure to protect liberty, not philosophers to protect liberty. Yes, sir. Um, Ashley Ebersole from uh, Vanderbilt. I uh, just have a question that's probably best uh, directed at Professors Burns and Baker, but um, you talked about universality as being a necessary, well, just based on your comments. <laughs> uh, you talked about universality as being a necessary condition for uh, articulating a moral principle, and I guess in, in Kantian terms, and if you're willing to apply something universally, even to your disadvantage, should that be enough for it to be the basis for, let's say, a judge's jurisprudence, um, even if it contravenes written law or even if it requires uh, an extremely attenuated reading of uh, the due process clause or some other written law in order to, to cabinet. So I guess on a really practical level, when should moral principles be the basis for jurisprudence when they are not explicitly mirrored in written law? Yeah, I mean, what you're, you're asking is sort of one of the two questions that this conference is addressing. It's it's addressing the question of what are the moral basis, what's the moral basis for law, morality understood expansively there. And the other one is what, when should law, if you want to use the phrase, enforce, uh, enforce morality. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a different question. Now, you're, you're, as I understand it, you're saying uh, should judges have, uh, be, be able to invoke moral principles extra textually? Uh, and that's a question of uh, constitutional law uh, and not of, not of political philosophy, I would say. Well, I think it is in this sense. He didn't specify whether we're talking about federal court or state court, whether we're talking about constitutional law, common law, etc. It depends on the system you're in. Professor Koppelman. Uh, Andy Koppelman, Northwestern University. Uh, I guess I wanted to juxtapose a problem that I saw in Michael Perry's paper with a uh, problem that I, with, raised by the 
conclusion of John Baker's paper. And I just start by repeating a point that I think it was Evan from Yale made, the Jacques Maritain point, that it's a mistake to talk about the philosophical and theological foundations of moral debate. Uh, and Rick, you're uh, pinch hitting for Michael here. I just found it puzzling to think that there was going to be some unique set of foundations of human rights, and you couldn't have human rights unless uh, everyone converged on the foundation. It seems to me that Maritain is quite right about this, that you're never going to get agreement about the foundations, because in order, it's one thing to say, well, they must be some kind of religious foundations, but once we figure out once we start pressing on that, you've got to figure out which religious foundations, and then we've got to settle which one is the true religion. And uh, you know, there's not enough time in the evening to settle that one. Uh, so then the problem is, if in fact the, if the, the point's been made more recently by John Rawls, that you're going, the best you can hope for is an overlapping consensus about a schedule of rights, um, if that's right, if there's going to be any content at all to the schedule of human rights that you arrive at, then, uh, for Professor Baker, doesn't there have to be a limit on the reach of federalism? I mean, obviously, there was a really big moral disagreement that we settled with federalism at the time of the founding. And that was slavery. So it seemed to be limits to what you can resolve by federalism. And I take it that, you know, in the abortion context, for instance, certainly the most impassioned people on both sides of the debate agree that this is a matter of fundamental human rights. It's not a matter about which we can say, well, you know, either, you know, you kill fetuses over there, we don't do it over here, that's okay. Or you force women to have babies over there and we don't do it over here, that's okay. I mean, if it's a matter of fundamental human rights, it just seems like a poor candidate for federalism. And you've got to make that call about whether it is a fundamental matter of human rights or not. Just invoking federalism doesn't seem to be a way of resolving the problem. You've got to figure out whether it's a human rights issue in the first place. If it's not, fine, be federalist. But that is the question, isn't it? Well, it, because I didn't have enough time. Uh... <laughs> You had exactly the right amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> Our system isn't just federalism. It's, it's separation of powers. I didn't even get into that. The uh, question of the 14th Amendment, and I certainly support the 14th Amendment. The problem is not the 14th Amendment as much as it is the 17th Amendment. And as if, if we didn't have the 17th Amendment and the states still controlled the Senate, you wouldn't have certain senators asking the late Chief Justice why he dared to strike down a federal law and prefer state sovereign immunity. That is, the whole structure has been distorted by the 17th Amendment. I think the 14th Amendment, without the 17th Amendment, gives you the proper structural constraints of separation of powers and federalism, which would have allowed the federal government to do away with the evils that still lingered. Just very quickly, um, this question has come up several times about uh, Jacques Maritain and the, uh, the struggle to find foundations for the human rights claims that were in the Universal Declaration. Um, I'm not competent to resolve those questions, but I direct you to a, a wonderful book by Professor uh, Marianne Glendon from a few years ago on the history of, uh, of the Declaration and on the 
the, the conversations that Professor Copperman's described were people who came to the table with very different foundational commitments, but nonetheless um, uh, committed to human rights in a strong form, not merely in kind of the rhetorical form that I think Richard Rorty's endorsing and that I think Michael Perry is, uh, were he here, would be criticizing. Uh, it's, it's a great story, and so go buy the book. Yes, sir. Uh, Chris Chaplack, American University. Um, this is a question for the whole panel, but I'd like to start with Professor Barnett. Uh, you brought up the distinction between private morality and public morality, and it made me think of uh, Frank Meyer's thesis that the state only exists to facil facilitate the individual's freedom to choose virtue or not to choose virtue. And I was wondering if everyone on the panel had thoughts on how, if the government or if the state's going to be involved in morality in any way, what safeguards or what bright line rules can we draw to avoid the utopian temptation? Could you just repeat the, because of the acoustics, I just didn't hear the last part of your question. What oh, if, um, if the state's going to be involved in shaping morality in any way, uh, what safeguards, what bright line rules can we draw to avoid the utopian temptation? I mean, my, my, my answer is uh, that we develop a system of background rights precisely to, keep, to try to keep the state honest. I mean, there is no guarantee that you'll keep the state honest. In fact, there's almost a guarantee that over the long run you won't, um, which is an argument against states. But assuming that uh, it's, it's an important argument against states, but assuming that you want to you know, resist uh, the tendency towards uh, utopianism or dystopianism, I mean, you, I think you need to um, carve out uh, what are the rights against which states are to be judged? States, I mean, by the way, I mean, governments are to be judged, federal government and state governments. And then you put them to some kind of burden of proof in showing it. I mean, I guess this is what I call the presumption of liberty. The presumption of liberty is simply who bears the burden when the government is purporting to be acting within its proper powers, uh, either the enumerated powers at the federal level or the police power at the state level. And... Uh, the idea that we just defer to what they say without asking them to put up uh, what their justification is and support it, it seems to be not asking too much of the government to, if they have a justification for what they're doing, to identify what that justification is and present uh, support for that justification. But that's not the approach we take unless we're talking about a, fundam a, a fundamental right, which is a very small subset of rights in which we do put the burden on the government to do that. Philosophically, there's a big difference between uh, among uh, modern philosophers on this. Um, so, some find these distinctions between private and public uh, supporting a negative liberty as opposed to encouraging virtue. So, some find those distinctions to be distinctions based on principle. I think Kant would be someone like that. Uh, the, the, the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition is not like that, but it, it tends to be more pragmatic uh, and does not draw so sharp a line between um, so sharp a line between what can be done to encourage virtue as opposed to or habituate habituate citizens to virtue uh, and um, and and not and in within that tradition the judgments are pragmatic Manda mandatory virtuous behavior is more suspect than for for example providing incentives towards um, uh, virtuous behavior. That, that would be one of those sort of pragmatic uh, compromises that would be a sort of a rule, a pragmatic rule that would keep, that would uh, prevent the government from succumbing to the utopian 
uh, temptation. I, I want to jump in here and just agree with that characterization. I think uh, I, may, I don't want to give the misleading impression because I, I tend to be sympathetic with an Aristotelian Thomistic approach to ethics or how one should live a good life. Um, I obviously uh, supplement that or at least uh, have an, an equally strong commitment to a more Lockean notion of natural rights, which is an enlightenment concept. It's not the same thing. It's not continue. It's not exactly the same thing as Aristotelian Thomism. And so I think if you stay solely within the Aristotelian Thomistic uh, uh, side of the equation, then it is a matter of, of prudence. It, it, it is sort of the way Rick set up the original uh, question, I think. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is reflected in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the quote I read from Aquinas, but if you cut across that with a Lockean notion of natural rights, which are the boundaries or space within which people get to choose, that's when you have a more matter of principle to try to distinguish, uh, well, when can the state step in and when they can't. So I, I just want to endorse what Bob just said is very important. At the time of the founding, uh, those who were really most concerned about morality were the anti-federalists or the Republicans. And there were different kinds of Republicans. There were those who were emphasizing personal morality, especially those in, in, in Massachusetts and the Northeast. And the Southern anti-federalists who emphasized morality were looking more towards uh, societal arrangements. So the one in the Northeast would have been both public and private morality merged together with religion, and you tended to have a theocratic view of the world. In the South, that was not the case. Now, today, people think of the South as somehow theocratic, but religion has always been much milder in the South, and it was not a, that much of a public issue. Uh, and, and it was different. But the important part is that the Federalists came to the conclusion that you couldn't rely on virtue to maintain the Republic. They had a great deal of doubt about the virtuous capability of the American people, especially after Shea's Rebellion. So they thought, especially Hamilton, that commerce was going to have to uh, create the kind of civility that virtue had, was thought to create. It's not that Hamilton and, and uh, Washington abandoned virtue at all. They realized that a certain amount of virtue was necessary, but they toned down the level of, of virtue that, you know, they hoped for. And so there are low expectations in a very prudential approach where the Constitution, as, as explained in the Federalist over and over again, you know, it, it operates on the notion that people are largely self-interested. But they structure it in such a way that through their self-interest, they will produce justice. And they left the possibility that, you know, better people would do great things, but they wouldn't expect everybody to do great things. And over and over again, they said, you know, uh, things against utopian philosophers. And it's virtually impossible for a utopian philosopher to get very far in American politics. And just in case one might, get very far. He's not going to get further than the governorship of a particular state. Thank goodness for federalism. As, as Madison said, we quarantine the idiots. All right, just so as that, many, that's a paraphrase. Just so as many people as possible can uh, ask their questions, let me ask the questioners to uh, pick a panelist, any panelist, and, uh, and go with that one. Yes, sir. This is for uh, Professor Barnett, then. Good evening. My name is Daniel Sir. I'm from Marquette Law. There's been renewed attention among Protestants to the concept of natural law, particularly due to the book The Natural Law and Reformed Theological uh, Ethics and subsequent book reviews like recent editions of First Things. Do you see uh, a sustained revival 
of natural law and Protestant public policy discussions, and would you attribute this to the influence of conservative Catholics as ecumenical allies in the culture wars? Am I the only Jew on this panel? <laughs> is, is there some reason why uh, you chose me? Professor Garnett, I imagine, has an opinion, too. I saw your well, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to, for the Catholics to take the credit for the process <laughs> discovering natural law again. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> Not, not to be flipped, though, the book that the questioner invoked actually uh, has been widely reviewed. Uh, look at me, I'm a, I'm a book shiller up here. Uh, it's really, it really is worth, uh, worth looking at. Yeah. John Maley, University of Denver, and my question is for Professor Barnett. The system of natural rights that you describe, uh, it would seem to invoke as its uh, authority would be a type of socio-utilitarianism in that these rights exist because they're the set of circumstances most favorable to humans thriving and surviving. And at the same time, it would seem like a lot of usurpations of both individual rights and things like property rights in uh, modern times also point to social utilitarianism as their reason. And so the question is how you rebuke the latter usurpations without throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater and throwing out the rights too. It's, it's a good question. It's, it's a little difficult to answer briefly. Uh, I just want to start by saying that uh, something can be a consequentialist theory without being utilitarian theory, and it's important to keep those straight. A utilitarian theory is a version of consequentialism in which one sums utility and tries to get the greatest good for the greatest number by some kind of aggregate amount. A consequentialist theory, uh, that, is a, that is a consequentialist theory, but it's only one kind. A consequentialist theory is concerned about consequences, and I do think that the classical natural rights theorists were concerned about consequences. Uh, but it's not necessarily, it, but it isn't a utilitarian theory. And the, the, the idea of utilitarianism as distinctive moral philosophy really developed later. Um, so, yes, I do think it's based on consequences, um, but it turns out, I think, the argument, a very strong argument can be made that one achieves the best consequences by respecting these rights and respecting them across the board and not balancing them out and not doing that and not deciding who wins and who loses in particular disputes on the basis of utilitarian calculation at all. Uh, so rights uh, properly conceived and properly conceived somewhat abstractly and elaborated through an appropriate, I think, evolving common law process uh, solves this problem uh, to achieve the ultimate consequence of the pursuit of the good. And I would also say there's a, a strongly egalitarian dimension of this approach because it's the pursuit of the good by each and every person, uh, it, which presupposes that there is a value uh, associated with each and every person. Again, that's not exactly, well, it's sort of utilitarian. It's not, it's not incompatible with utilitarianism, but it's not the same thing as utilitarianism at all. Professor Barnett talks about those natural rights as imposing a frame on society that you can't violate, at least without, uh, without, without very good reason. And one of the goals of that frame, as I understand it, um, it's within that frame that one may pursue fairness, I think you put it, and efficiency. So I guess my question would be, do we know enough? It's almost like a science of society in order to be able to identify that frame because it trumps decisions of fairness, as I understand it decisions about fairness and efficiency, at least as at least presumptively, and it takes those off the table for ordin the ordinary processes of deliberation. So that's my that's my nervousness with that notion of natural rights justified on consequentialist grounds, but providing a frame 
that limits what ordinary deliberation can be about matters of fairness, um, about matters of fairness. Yes, sir. Uh, Washington University, St. Louis. Um, this, uh, is, I, I know it's against rules, but open to all of you, but specifically to the fellow with the uh, the 18-part series. I forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I need a new prescription. So the I television can't star, you mean. The, the yeah. Professor Baker. Um, my question specifically regards uh, this idea of choice that you that you mentioned in, uh, in, in your speech. And uh, I, I believe it was Aristotle who, who actually said that... Um, who argued that if, if an actor could, ration, could rationally make a decision that he would never make the wrong choice, if he had all the right facts, that necessarily he would always make the right choice over the wrong choice, and if he chose the wrong thing, that that was really just a misunderstanding on his part. So what is the role of choice and its, and its, and its relationship to morality intrinsically? Why, why is it that the choice has to be present in order for you know, the potential for what we term a moral society to exist? Well, morality is not equal to religion at all. Morality simply involves choosing the good. And the reality is that everyone, even Hitler, chooses what he or she thinks is good. So we are driven internally to choose a good even if we justify the good, killing people. We see a good. We prioritize it. But then the rest of us are called upon to judge whether that good is not good. And there is a broad parameter in many areas of choice where things are chosen as good by different people, and they may well be equally good. And they are, depending on the issue, jury trial is good. But if you're in France, they're not going to choose a jury trial. Is it, is it wrong for us to say that it's good and for them to say it's not good for their society? No. You make different choices, but not all choices are possible. That is, the example you give sounds like the rationalist notion that you choose everything. The reality is that many choices are made for us, the society we're born into, etc. Many things are a given and that we can't really change. Fortunately for Americans, and we don't often realize how different it is around the rest of the world. We have more freedom to choose things and to change things than any other nation on earth. And that was the point in Federalist One. We would determine for all ages whether it is possible by reason and choice rather than by accident in history to have good government. And we need to renew that commitment because most of the world doesn't agree with that. Mr. Matthews, you have the last question. David Matthews, Notre Dame, I can only hope my question is more challenging than my team's defense. Uh, <laughs> I would, like, would have liked to ask everyone, but I'll focus the question on Professor Barnett because he's the one who quoted John Locke. You quoted the quote from Locke, as I gathered with approval, that articulates basically a classic harm principle that the government may regulate morality, and forgive me if I misunderstand you, only when someone's immoral act inflicts a sufficient harm on their fellow citizens to justify that regulation. And to the extent that that's true of your view and anyone's view, what's our criteria for deciding what counts as a harm? 
Why is that criteria valid? Are we limited to physical harms with murder, or can we go into a more moral harm, like setting up a casino in a residential area? It's, it's a great question. It, it allows me to uh, make it very clear that the harm principle taken by itself, which is essentially associated with uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, is, is completely inadequate uh, to answer the question of what is uh, just and what is unjust and what violates rights and what doesn't violate rights. So um, I do not associate with a harm principle generally. I don't even talk about the harm principle. It, what Locke said here in this, phrase, in this passage that I talked to is harm to another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. So the, what follows after harm is not just harm to another, but harm to another in these things. Uh, is the beginning of what I said we learned in the first year of law school, which what is, what is a cognizable harm to life, liberty, and property, um, such that it can be rectified coercively by the, by the rule of law. Uh, and that's a subset of harm. It's not all harm. We have a right to harm others, actually. We harm others all the time when we choose or exclude them from our associations, and we do a lot of other things. When we insult people, um, uh, that's a harm. There's, uh, and we benefit people all the time without being able to charge for it. So we have harms and benefits that, go, that are just, they don't line up exactly with rights. So we need a rights theory, not a harm principle, to specify those harms which we are entitled to inflict and those harms for which we're going to be held responsible. And that's what I say that uh, over a uh, series of centuries, um, we have evolved a knowledge of, an imperfect knowledge of, which requires constant tinkering as new circumstances arise. But, you know, you did learn something real in the first year of law school, especially in your private law subjects. Whether you learn something real in constitutional law, your public law subjects, I leave that to you to decide. <laughs> Thank you. Just, uh, just in order to, to justify my paycheck, I have to assert that you learned something in your criminal law classes as well. Um, I'm, I'm directed by the higher authority to tell you that drinks are outside. So uh, thank you and enjoy.